0: Hi, and thank you for tuning into this podcast about recognizing and referring patients with signs of potential idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. My name is Erica Herzog. I am a pulmonologist and the director of the Interstitial Lung Disease Center of Excellence at Yale School of Medicine. I specialize in diagnosing and treating interstitial lung diseases, or ILDs, and idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, also called IPF. Let's ground ourselves with some brief background information about what ILDs and IPF are before we dive into today's conversation. ILDs are a large, diverse group of lung diseases that cause lung fibrosis. There are over 150 distinct ILDs, many of which share similar presentation and clinical evaluation, radiologic imaging, and even histopathologic assessment. These diseases can often be distinguished based on details obtained from taking a thorough medical history that includes information regarding a patient's previous exposures, both at work and at home, and the presence or absence of symptoms occurring outside the lung and certain findings on physical exam. However, about 65% of all ILDs have unknown origin. IPF itself makes up about half of these unknown cases and around 33% of all ILD cases. Diagnosing IPF requires ruling out all other potential causes of ILD. Because IPF is a rare disease, it is often initially misdiagnosed. The initial symptoms tend to be generic, such as shortness of breath and a chronic dry cough, which patients may attribute to aging or general lack of physical activity. It takes, on average, one to two years from the time patients decide to seek medical intervention for their symptoms to receive a diagnosis of IPF. So today we will focus on recognizing the potential signs of IPF and understanding when patients should be referred to an ILD center. Joining me to discuss this topic is Dr. Marilyn Glassberg, Director of the Rare and Interstitial Lung Disease Program at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. Dr. Glassberg specializes in treating interstitial lung diseases, or ILDs, and specifically idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, called IPF. Marilyn, thank you so much for joining me today. This is going to be a great conversation. Good morning, Erica. As we just discussed, the average time to diagnosis for a patient with IPF is approximately one to two years. What factors do you think contribute to this delay in diagnosis? So you know, Erica, I think most of the problem with these patients is that they don't have a specific set of complaints or uh, lab tests that can be done to say what they have. And so these patients come in, uh, usually with symptoms for quite a while, and then the, the workup begins. And unfortunately, um, IPF is not on the top of the list. So they get worked up for a variety of other causes. And this, this disease, you know, sort of goes way down the list. And by the time it's thought of, these patients um, have further progression of their disease. And we know that the longer it takes to make this diagnosis, the worse these patients do. I think the other thing that happens is, is on the patient side that the patients deny some of their symptoms, right? The, the subtleties and the shortness of breath. I always talk about my patients who play tennis or play golf, and they the, the big ones are they've been playing singles tennis for many years and they've been doing great. And all of a sudden they know, you know, maybe I should play doubles. And then they play doubles, and they notice that they're taking more breaks. And when they get enough breaks, they start to say, hey, wait a second, this can't just be because I'm getting older. There's got to be something else. And they go to their doctors. And they get worked up for many other things before IPF is thought of. And I I think that's really the biggest part of this delay is both on the physician side, it's also on the patient side. Yeah, so, so you mentioned the delay in diagnosis. What do you see patients with IPF getting diagnosed with initially? So the majority of mine are getting heart disease as their main label, and some of them COPD. And that's because these patients are predominantly men above the age of 50, they're ex-smokers. In in my part of the world, they're retired. They're they're enjoying themselves, but they're developing the shortness of breath. Um, and and a lot of it is is that they go to their primary care doctor. They're short of breath, and because of who they are, right, they get that cardiac workup. And when the cardiac workup doesn't pan out, then they'll say, oh well, you have emphysema. And if they have a cough, oh well, you have emphysema, chronic bronchitis. In fact, that's what most the COPD is. So your problem must be that you have COPD, so we'll give you some inhalers and see how you do. You know, these patients, there aren't a lot of diagnostics necessarily done, and so that also, as we started this conversation, certainly adds to the delay. So in that light then, how do you think that healthcare professionals other than pulmonologists, you know, for example, primary care physicians, should approach evaluating patients with shortness of breath or chronic cough? So I would never tell them not to think about their comorbidities in this patient population. I would say, go for the comorbidities, be as efficient as you can in evaluating what I would consider the top two, right, the the cardiac and the COPD, but move quickly to getting some diagnostics. You know, chest X-rays, PFTs, and then you know any abnormality that's noted. Obviously, the, the test that we're always looking for is the high resolution CT scan. I think what happens to a, a lot of the, stop at the primary care is that they don't also refer the patient on. So they may find negative workups, but then they don't move on. And I think the message to the primary care physician is move on. There should be an explanation, and we can find it. And the referral to specialty centers and to colleagues, pulmonologists in particular, is very important, and not to delay that workup. So I, I definitely agree with you. And you've already mentioned heart disease and COPD as um, other causes of shortness of breath. What about GERD symptoms or sleep apnea? Sometimes patients get diagnosed with with those entities instead of IPF. What do you think about those problems? Well, I think those are really important. Um, you know, there's been a lot of work in GERD, as, as we know, in terms of looking at it as a risk factor. Uh, you know, literature that even had come out that suggested that it had a survival signal. Of course, we know now that that's not the case in prospective studies, and we're going to get some more definitive answers with current, you know, data that's in the works with the RAP trial. But I think we have to treat the GERD symptoms. But as far as blaming the GERD and being content with blaming GERD, that I wouldn't stop as a reason. Um, And I would continue to to look for, and certainly the high-resolution scan here, to look for the pattern, so I think GERD symptoms are important to treat, but I wouldn't blame them. Uh, I be sure. using them as a guide. Um, what What are your? Do you have any thoughts on that? I think that's definitely true. That GERD symptoms, if patients symptomatic, they should definitely be evaluated and potentially treated. But if a patient is very short of breath, we definitely can't blame. GERD. And so that's a pretty good segue into, in your opinion, signs and symptoms of common diseases like emphysema or asthma or even GERD versus IPF and other ILDs. How would you differentiate that in either the history or the physical exam? Let me talk first about the history because I think you bring up a very important point and we can, we can discuss this also in terms of the sleep apnea and other causes of shortness of breath, I always tell my fellows and my colleagues how important it is to take time to get this history, to take time to look at the risk factors. Um, You know, is this somebody who worked in the shipping industry, Uh, a roofer, um, you know, a gardener? What are their hobbies? Where have they traveled? Take the time to really get the history completely so you can look at risk factors. As I mentioned before, and we know, you know, the majority of these people are ex-smokers, so we know that risk factor. But when we're looking at other things in the history, it becomes very important. I think I'd like to um, talk a little more about two different things that you brought up. So one was the exposure history, and that mm-hmm. can either be at home, such as is there mold in the home, or do they have mm-hmm. a bird, or or in the workplace. So uh, what are some common workplace exposures that um, people might have heard about or might not realize is something that if they have it would give them a different diagnosis than ipf i think the big one that we all talk about is asbestos exposure uh and we know that that can go on for a very long time but that there are certain key elements in the high resolution scan that we look for we look at patterns we look for plaques and we most importantly we look for the history so you know in south florida we have a lot of builders right and also people who have retired here, like that worked in the plumbing industry in New York, right, In the under the streets and uh, lined the tubes, are people that worked in wallpaper where asbestos is incorporated in it to make it stick better. And so, you know, once again, it's asking them the, the right kind of questions and say, well, you have asbestos exposure. They're going to say, well, you know, I've heard about that, but not really sure so i always ask them did you what kind of work did you do right what what exactly did you do and then of course the ship workers we do have a lot of retired veterans asking them if they you know worked in the the brake linings that they get we also have people have hobbies with cars so it's you know you're you're educating when you're with the fellows and stuff you're educating them in a lot of vocations and what people do as well as what their hobbies are Certainly, some of that comes after you see the scan, right? That can happen too. Or you see the scan, you say, "Hey, wait a second. Um, can I ask you a couple of more questions about what you do?" Uh, so, so those are, I think, the the biggest ones for me. Do you have others that you think of? No, I think you. Go, I think you hit it. It's it's really the mold and the asbestos, maybe some other particulate matter, and especially we see, um, as you said, the former construction. I I had a patient who. T- talked about in the 1970s laying asbestos in a sports stadium and then in the 90s mm-hmm. taking that asbestos back out of the sports stadium right, right. and <laughs> not re- not really wearing adequate protection other times mm-hmm. um right. so that that's very challenging there's also i i think there's something recently there was a CDC report about um dentists having an increased yes. risk of IPF i'm not sure if the data on that are are clear or not because it was only one center but you could certainly see any any profession where there's chronic exposure to particulate matter that your lungs aren't going to be able to handle you're you're certainly going to be at risk A dental technician who died actually um who had the classic pattern on high resolution skin, and what he did with made implants exactly yeah i i actually so had two I think um, a lot two of dentists it like that don't, yeah, they don't realize their exposures, you know, that the dust is going up while they're drilling, right, and they're not thinking about all those little particles, uh, and the smaller they are, the deeper they're going in their lungs as they breathe them in. Um, the other thing I was going to bring up for us is um, an environmental risk that, that takes them away from the IPF diagnosis is hypersensitivity pneumonitis, is all the people that have birds here as pets that they don't consider as pets. So... You know when we see nodules in the skin, for example, uh you know in an upper lobe predominant pattern, we're going to ask them if they're raising the chickens in their backyard um It's not right. always Cosoquiels down here; we have chickens as pets, so it it's once again you know appreciating the culture of the patients is also important uh in in managing them so that's our that's the only other environmental one that really stands out to me those those three asbestos, the mold, and then the birds. Something else you mentioned was finding symptoms or physical findings outside of the lung. So a common consult that we'll get is patient with rheumatoid arthritis and lung disease. uh, Does this patient have IPF? Yes. Yes. So what you know, it's sort of a re-education process. I think too is that patients who have an underlying autoimmune disease aren't labeled as IPF as we know it, right? They're they're labeled in the association of the autoimmune disease they have. The, the problem, I think, a lot of times is the pattern on the scan obviously can be the same. But what really takes me, and I'm always very careful about, once again, in that history and physical exam is looking at the patient's hands, looking at the sides of the fingers, looking for the telangetagia, looking for the sores on the tips, right? So things that would gear us, you know, ul- ulnar deviation that would gear us toward a rheumatoid arthritis diagnosis, dermatomyositis diagnosis, scleroderma diagnosis. And all of, you know, like the scleroderma presentation can be very broad. But as soon as we find something, then that takes us away from the IPF diagnosis and steers us down a different highway. But once again, you know, a lot of this is is history too, right? Asking them, do you have joint symptoms? Are you stiff in the morning? Do your hands swell? Right, So that we can look to try to better get us tuned into their diagnosis. I absolutely agree with you. How important that is. Yeah, it's it's funny because um, so we, we do a really good physical exam here, and p- patients come in. I mean, we make them take off everything and and put on right. and down. And many of them aren't used to such a complete
1: <laughs> no. physical
0: exam, but I mean. <laughs> They're a little shocked that their pulmonologist actually wants to take a look at their their chest and their back to see yeah. do they have yeah. cases? do they have the shawl like rash that you'll see with dermatomyositis yeah. and I agree with you about the hands you can really see so much you can you know see the the nail pitting with psoriasis the finger swelling yeah. with mechanic's hands um, the palmar erythema and then of course you, you talked about the the joint deviation um, and yeah. the sclerodactyly. Um, I, mean, is what there, now, right? I think I think what happens with these patients is that they're going to the primary care doctors, right, where the average time spent with this patient is so brief, right? It's like eight minutes nationally. So a lot of stuff, we want that primary care physician, you know, to zoom in on things that are, you know, not, not cardiac and not COPD and get them to the IPF diagnosis. And a lot of that is referring them to us who then we have to decide do they or do they not have right, the IPF, but we'd like to get to the point where the primary care doctor is sending them in for just that diagnosis, right, that they will have gotten tuned into this. That would be so key. But you're right. I mean, I think that the, the history and the physical exam time is so critical in this diagnosis. So, so people love talking about the dry velcro crackles that identify <laughs> pulmonary fibrosis. What does that actually mean, and is that specific to IPF? So I don't, I would say it's not specific to IPF, obviously, right? Many, I always say there are many highways I describe, you know, in Miami, we have I-95, we have 395, we have 826, we have the Turnpike, and yet, at the end, they all go to Key West. And in Key West, that's called pipe fibrosis. So you get, at the end, you get those crackling as the nice, soft tissue that should be like a sponge, right, really sorts really starts to harden and disintegrate, right? And, and I always, um, you know, when I, I, I scratch my hair a little bit or I talk about, you know, the, the sneakers with the crackle, right, that when you snap the tops to close your sneakers when you don't have to tie them, that's what it sounds like. It's a very important finding. Unfortunately, it's a finding that's associated with some severity in the sense that that disease couldn't have happened two weeks ago. So once again, the history, right, it matches that the patient has had symptoms for a while. Um, And I think that also helps us in the chronology. I think that covers uh, how, you know, the primary care people, when they hear these crackles, how they might want to think about them. Right. I think that's really important because in, in terms of differentiating between entities like asthma or COPD, you're going to have the dry and crackles in in a more interstitial fibrotic process and really unlikely right. to have that in, in an obstructive process. And even congestive heart failure, they'll be crackles, but they'll be somewhat more wet. Yeah, the other issue is that where you hear the crackles, right? So that, that, that when you're listening to the patient, right, we know that, that in IPF, this should be predominantly a basilar pattern, but how about rheumatoid lung, right? Rheumatoid lung is also a basilar pattern, right? Sclerodermal lung. So it's good for fibrosis. It's not exact for IPF, but it's good to differentiate because it tells you some of what's going on in that lung. Right, and you're bringing up a good point about the basilar predominance because when we talk about CAT scans, Um, we'll get into that, but um, oftentimes we find that patients will be documented as having clear lungs, but then when we take a listen, either going further down on the back or going laterally, that we're able to to hear crackles Mm -hmm. that might have been missed in the outpatient setting. Is that something you see as well? Sure. Sometimes they only listen anteriorly also, so you may not hear it. So it's right. all in taking the time to do the physical exam. Exactly. Right. And so now in terms of um, adjunctive testing, a lot of primary care offices are able to do, at the very least, barometry. I mean, when, when people come to us, they get a full set of PFTs. What types of patterns should people on the front line be looking for to help with the diagnosis of interstitial lung disease and particularly IPF? Yeah, so you know, when I give this when I, I give this talk with the family practice and the primary care physicians, I say be careful of normal PFTs. Be very careful that the FEV1 FVC on their little spirometry machines may be okay. In fact, it may be high, right? Because in a, mm-hmm. in a restrictive pattern, we know that the FEV1 can be low, but we'll have preservation of the ratio. Yeah. So. I'm very passionate about the low FEV1 leading to a diagnosis of COPD. I mean the patient may have a COPD component but when the FEV yes. when the force vital capacity and the FEV1 are both low, uh yes. r- really it's it's leading to a delay in diagnosis and it's it's not getting the patient uh the care that they need early. So if, as you said, if the ratio is particularly high, or if the F, just look at the FVC, if that's low in proportion to the FEV1, that would be time to send to a pulmonologist for full PFTs. The other thing that happens though is that these people, at least in our hands, if we're lucky enough to see them early, right, and and they they their complaints for whatever reason have been enough to get the high resolution scan, they may have normal PFTs. So so for me I'm very you know when they send me the the little machine stuff from their office I say you know that's great that you did that but and I'm so glad that you went ahead and sent the patient despite the normal PFTs now yeah, that that I think that's that's the other piece so I so agree with you um that use the test sparingly but use it with anything that looks suspicious like the FEV1 FVC being uh, you know uh, both being low watch out Right. And what about the diffusion? So what we'll see sometimes is somebody has what looks like normal spirometry, but then their diffusion capacity is down in the 40s or 50s. What do you think about that? So I think when, I don't see those coming from the primary care. So I'll see those coming from the pulmonologist. And that, for me, is a flag. But they've been taught that the low DLCO is more consistent with COPD. We we realize, obviously, in the interstitial lung disease world, that that's not the case, that this has a lot to do with this basilar uh, involvement of the disease, where oxygenation, because of the ventilation perfusion zone, gets impaired, right? And that that does seem to do very well with them presenting with an oxygen impairment as well as a low DLCO. You mentioned uh, low oxygen, and a lot of times what we'll see is patients have an O2 sat of 95% resting. Yep, and they've never been walked. What do you think about ambulatory oximetry in a six-minute walk test? So for our center, it's mandatory. Um, They all get, and I think that we know from old studies, I think there was an old lazy clinic study that pulmonologists actually assessed hypoxemia by having patients sit, and uh, when they saw that the saturation was above 90%, they didn't walk them, so for me, that doesn't work, especially because once in the history, the patient is complaining, not usually with symptoms at rest. They're complaining with symptoms with exertion. So to me, a six minute walk test is fundamental. Right. So now in terms of, let's switch gears and talk a little bit about the next step. Let's say you're a primary care physician and um, uh, interstitial lung disease is now on the differential. Patient with long-term shortness of breath, dry cough, dry crackles, nothing else on physical exam, and they look like they're mildly restricted on PFTs. What's next? So the primary care doctors will do an X-ray. Um, if it's early disease, it doesn't help them. If it's late disease, it's too late. Uh, so hopefully <laughs> there's The time. So for me, uh, uh, hopefully we get the patients in earlier because we're going to educate them not to deny their shortness of breath and dry cough. They're going to get this x-ray. Hopefully this x-ray may show a little bit of something, but I think you still pursue their complaints and you order a high-resolution scan. What we see a lot of times is in the community hospitals, they order a high-resolution scan as a five-millimeter scan, or they don't specify high-resolution. You know, we've had a learning curve with the radiologists. that's been good. They, When we put in now for the community um, docs, when, when they're making their orders, we are asking them to write suspect interstitial lung disease, please perform one millimeter cut. So we're asking them we, we, on this handout that we send out, we're, we're organizing to try to get that. But in a lot of these community hospitals, Erica, it's a five millimeter scan. That's not the worst thing in the world. It's still going to be much better than a chest x-ray, um, but clearly to get the pattern and to understand it in terms of our centers, we need this, you know, really thin cut high resolution scan with expiratory and inspiratory views. So sometimes what we'll see, I, I don't know how your center does um, high res CAT scans, but our patients will get a kind of regular look at the chest first, and then they'll get the, the high res cuts, which can be important, right? Because let's say there's a nodule, you might not be able to get that properly with, with a high res. Um, mm-hmm. And so then we'll, we'll see patients who end up getting a lot of CAT, cat scans, I guess, because the, the high res shows something, a possible nodule, then they go back and get a regular one, then they go back three months later and then they don't get a high res ordered, they get a regular one ordered and it just ends up being a lot of scanning. What recommendations do you have to sort of avoid that? I wish it could be streamlined. We sort of have to get into the brains of the physician who's seeing the patient initially and appreciate where they're coming from. But our advice is that when they think of interstitial lung disease, to do the high resolution protocol. I'm just happy if they do a CT scan, right? That they don't (laughs) stop at the test x-ray. So in my mind, I'm like, oh, and I'm gonna tell them now which ones to do. I'm not sure, I don't know about my community folks. I mean, they're really good now, they, they, but they just they get the CT and they move them on. So I think what I'm hearing you say is that because the initial diagnosis of interstitial lung disease is important, that we really need to go for the high resolution CAT scan to, to assist Earth. the diagnosis. And then yeah. in terms of repeat scanning, you sound like you're like me and my, my colleagues up here where we don't routinely scan in a highly regular fashion, in a no. patient who's stable and whose symptoms and lo- are are really not progressing. Is that correct? I, That's fair. I absolutely agree. I mean, I use I use my walk test as a barometer, right? I, I routinely bring them back. Um, you know, especially if they've had any requirements for oxygen before. I'm making sure that they're stable or are meeting their requirements because I, I, as I said, I, I think it's the best drug and it's how I'm going to keep them alive. Although I don't have a study necessarily to back it up in ILD, I think I have enough evidence to say that I need to replace their oxygen requirements. I, I, I'm falling in that group that says oxygen still matters, right? It still matters right. that we, we need their requirements unless unless they come in with an exacerbation or there there's something else that's changed it's very unlikely that we're going to run a new scan. Right, because it's not going to change management. No, not at all. And and we want to teach, you know, for the fellows, right, and the house staff, we'll be teaching them evidence-based medicine. So it's like, what are you going to do with that information? All you're going to do is make the, as I said, glow in the dark. You're not going to get anything right. out of it. So in terms of um, transplants, in your opinion, and I think people – most, I think most ILD physicians will have the same opinion on this. When do you think a patient with IPF should be referred for transplant evaluation? So we refer fairly early. We don't refer right at the start of the diagnosis, but what we do is we refer as soon, either as, soon as there is a decrease in the FDC or an oxygen requirement. And usually it's the oxygen requirement that gets them in to start the process. And we explain that it's not that we think they need a transplant right away, certainly with a five year fifty percent survival on transplant, we're not suggesting that they rush in. But one of the problems in i p f is that we tend to get they get referred too late, and then they're they're very sick in their courses if you look at the you know survival of these patients, although many of them are doing very well overall i p f patients are not your best candidate. and so we we try to refer um early on in the process with some precautionary information to the patients at the center. The problem is in this disease is that it's so unpredictable. I think that's the point you point out, is that if there's right. anything that gives you a flag, send them. Because by the time they end up like this patient yesterday, who I really feel badly about because we we tried very hard, it, it, it's very unlikely that that she's gonna be able to get through a transplant at this point. Right, and so I guess it's it's probably not the primary care job to refer for transplant. No. It's going to be the pulmonologist and the ILD center job, and it's I, I think that's another reason to advocate for referring to the to an ILD center early, right? Yeah, I would prefer that we advocate to the ILD center than directly to the transplant center. Uh, yeah, I agree. I agree with that. So I, I I I I have some pulmonologists that refer directly to the transplant center, and I. I'm not, I'm not so in favor of that these days. I really think that there are a number of trials out there, and these are therapies that need to be tried. And obviously, that's tied into the early recognition of the disease. So early recognition, early referral, and then have us at these ILD centers putting the patients into the transplant road. Right. And so sometimes what we do, let's, we'll have patients travel from several hours away. We have people fly in from California. We have people travel from very long distances. Obviously, we can't take care of those patients in their local community. So we do a lot of co-managing where we work Mm -hmm. closely with the community pulmonologist or their community physician to enable sort of optimal care. So we'll establish the diagnosis and then we'll get the, the primary on the phone and we'll we'll talk about how we're going to start an antifibrotic or we're, we talk about how we're recommending clinical trial entry or, or transplant evaluation. Do you have that situation? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I get them from all over the globe all these patients and I think the partnership is key Uh, and in fact if they've come from some of them do come from a primary care as you mentioned some of them come from pulmonologists but I'm also very good at creating a network of pulmonologists in these places that tend to refer a lot to us even from afar you know Alabama the Caribbean I mean there's a network in South America so that we can partner with a pulmonologist there, so when that patient gets that acute exacerbation, there's somebody on board for them, or there's even somebody on board to do that routine six-minute walk test when they live in the mountains in Guatemala, right, that knows what to do with these patients and partners with us and communicates. I mean, you know, the internet and Skype and all of this makes it so much easier to do this networking, and I agree with you, They, they have to have a community physician partner, absolutely. Uh, I don't think at our ILB centers, we could ever take care of everything that comes to us. But as a partnership, I think we can do a really good job. No, I definitely agree. And your your point about having a local pulmonologist in addition to primary care is, is really important because not having to travel to a distant center, being able to go get your routine testing, at a, a place that's twenty minutes away, and then also think about if, if God forbid, the patient gets admitted to the hospital, having that right. pulmonologist that knows the patient and can help manage either the medications or the ventilation. I mean, it's very, very difficult when you're a very sick ILD patient, IPF patient admitted to the hospital and nobody knows your history, which I guess brings sure. up the point of of the uh, the primary care. So we've been talking mm-hmm. a lot about what the primary care doctor. Can do here. I think my bias is that it's the primary care is, is really valuable in identifying that there's a respiratory issue, potentially ILD. But in terms of sorting out which one it is, probably not really in that the primary care purview. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I I, I think that they they should. Um, they're really good at the first stop. It's such an important stop, but it's to keep the momentum going right and refer these patients along. I, I agree. Yeah. So you actually you mentioned the internet before. Um, yes. Do you have recommendations for patients and healthcare providers for what they should do if they want to learn more about either ILD or IPF? So we have the um, PFF, the Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation. We have the American Lung Association that has recently entirely revamped their site. Uh, it's, it's excellent. It's written very well for them to understand. PFF has podcasts. We also have insights and in IPF.com. So these are all sites that the information, um, is correct. But there's a lot, as uh, you know, there've been at least one major publication about the problems of what's on the internet. Because so, you know, a lot of times when you're talking about this, you're referring them to a website or you're referring them to clinicaltrials.gov, where they can see all the different trials. You know, it's buyer beware. There's a lot of misinformation even on clinicaltrials.gov. But so they have to know, right, where to go, to get the right information, and also be aware that a lot of the information is not—it's not filtered. And I tell that to the, to the primary care docs, too, you know, that the recognition of the disease is important. It's also important how you guide them in management of that disease, right? The diagnosis is key, but how you get them into the right avenues is so important because these are desperate patients. Once they go on that Internet, and they start reading how horrible this is and that they're going to be, you know, they're going to die. They come in with their burial plots and they say, but I found this, right? I found this treatment that that makes you live longer. The guy, you know, there's this, there's this person asking for money because he's trying to, you know, uh, work on his company so that he can create this longevity program. And I'm like, no, 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 you know, like let's focus on what we can do. Here's some sites where you can read in addition to what I'm expounding on. You can do this and really sort of energize them to get the right information. Well, so do you think there's anything else that we haven't touched upon that would be important to discuss today? Um, I, I think the only thing is, once again, to for, for the patients that are listening, that the recognition of the disease is is very important and that, I'm assuming they're going to listen because they have the diagnosis, but they're going to meet people who are also short of breath with a dry cough and And I think that the physician should sort of have the mindset of there has got to be a cause for your shortness of breath and cough, and I'm going to really try to figure this out. I'm going to do the initial studies, but I'm also going to make sure that I refer you along. I may refer you first to the cardiologist, but I realize that there's some pulmonary things in your lungs that we could you know do to try to help determine what's wrong with you. But we're going to figure it out, that that your symptoms are are, are real. Right. I definitely agree. I definitely agree. Just because a patient is aging does not mean that they're supposed to have a dry cough, become short of breath, and not be able to to live their life. So if that's going on, it really needs to be evaluated. So I definitely agree agree with you on that. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Marilyn. Thanks very much, Erica. I've enjoyed it this morning. Join us next time to learn about differentiating between the various ILDs with Dr. Paul Noble, a pulmonologist with expertise in diagnosing and treating IPF at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. In the meantime, you can learn more about recognizing and diagnosing IPF by visiting www.insightsinipf.com and by downloading the RadRounds UIP to IPF app in the iTunes Store or Google Play Store.